Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 19. A music is not a genre. This is the crooner episode. There's no way in hell I'm gonna sing it all. At all, really. Hi. That's that's my introduction this this week. Thank you, as always, for listening and watching. Don't forget you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre where you get to hear a lot more of that or anchor.fm slash music is not a genre the public hub is youtube.com slash at music is not a genre my website is nickdematio.com where you also get to hear more of that and other things and please listen to and support my band rec rec at recarea.bandcamp.com uh let's get right to it if we haven't already wasn't well, that interesting? This is the topic for this week, the crooner episode. Was Frank Sinatra really all that great? So, you know, originally this stemmed out of, uh, it was on my list of things to do, but it stemmed out of a discussion I was having with my parents. And uh, my mom said something uh, in terms of her opinion of Frank Sinatra that I happen to agree with, which I'll get to later. And it got me thinking about Frank Sinatra's career and I felt like, yeah, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert, a chairman of the board expert, which uh, if you've seen the graphic for this, whether you're listening or watching, wonder if you got the rebus, just gave it away. But I know enough to know, you know, to know what I'm talking about as far as Frank goes. And I also didn't want to make it just fully about Frank Sinatra for several reasons. So I thought I expanded it and make it about crooners in general, thus the crooner episode. So I'm going to start with just a, a brief, what is a crooner history of crooners? Uh, my classifications of the different kinds of crooners uh, of the, of the major era. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, kind of the, the overview. Uh, and then another overview of Frank Sinatra himself, his career. And then after that, it's going to be uh, the various crooner eras, which I believe I divided, uh, into five, five different crooner eras uh, in the last hundred years. And that's kind of the overview. And then, of course, the featured song, which is a very special featured song this week. I mean, they're all special, but this is super special, and you'll see why. 
And as always, your comments, your feedback uh, at any point. I, I would love that. So what's a crooner? What makes a crooner a crooner? I think the best way to answer that is to start from the beginning, which is that prior to uh, amplified sound, it was kind of impossible to croon. If you were on stage and wanted to project your voice at all, you either sang very loudly or had a megaphone of sorts or a real megaphone. And otherwise, there was no other way to get your voice to the back row. Once amplification came along and people started to understand that the microphone is an instrument itself and you can use it differently, then that kind of stage projection voice still used throughout the ages, yes, but didn't need to be. You could do the softer singing, the singing more intimately, and that's what crooning is. That's where crooning came from. Uh, and, of course, it's morphed a lot since then, and we'll kind of go over how it's morphed when I do the eras. You know, We can't go into all the offshoots and all of that. That would just take too long. But you can count, really, the early 1920s is when this started to shift. You know, amplified sound had been around a little before then, but when it really started to be laid down on recordings, 78 RPMs and things like that, that's when uh, crooners began to exist. You know. Now, quick note here, I, I think that crooning as a style is very distinct. It doesn't mean there aren't variations, but you're talking about essentially, as we know it, kind of a light jazz, you know, a very, let's say, non-intricate uh, melodic jazz. Now, within that, there are people who have crossed in and out of crooning, who haven't just done crooning. You know, you can think of somebody like Ella Fitzgerald, whose diversity was off the charts. Some of what she did was crooning, but quite a bit of what she did was a lot of these other things. And those people who crossed over into crooning, I think are, are you know, can, I, I list many of them on my crooner list, but they're not maybe strict crooners in terms of the most, the strictest definition of what a crooner is. And the way I break it down is you have crooner, the, the strict, you know, right down the middle. You have a belter. So one thing about crooning is it's that intimate sound. But if you're somebody like, uh, you know, ah, God, I'm, uh, Ethel Merman, let's say, or, or even in many ways Adele, there are times where, you know, Adele can croon and has crooned, but, but she's got a belting voice, and that's a little different. That's why I did not include Barbara Streisand on my list, because her, the, the majority of what she's done has been belting. Uh, and then you have what I call the jazzer. So that's a little more intricate, a little more complex. I think people like Ella, Mel Torme, uh, you know, even Tony Bennett to some degree have crossed over from just straight-up crooning pop, uh, you know, in, in many ways, kind of the David Sanborn or Kenny G in, as vocals um, and, and, and no judgment there, but have made it more intricate, have made it more complex, have added a little more uh, offbeats and swing and things like that and, and uh, melodic uh, intricacy and experimentation to it, even if you're talking about scatting or not. And then you have the popper, which to me is you're going even lighter than a crooner your voice is more of kind of a pure pop voice. Like, let's say I looked up a bunch of crooning lists and Pat Boone was on there. He's not the first name that comes to mind when I think of crooners. He's not in the first 20. 
But yes, I get why that's because he had a kind of a softer, more intimate approach. And yet his voice was just about as straight as you can get. So I'm thinking I, I call people like that poppers. And then you have a dabbler. And that to me is someone who does an album, a song, in crooning, in that style, you know, minds the great American songbook, but the majority, the vast majority of their career has nothing to do with crooning. And we'll go over some of those. Uh, I'll mention them when I get to, especially to the later eras, right? So keep all of that in mind. So Frank Sinatra, you know. Uh, Frank Sinatra is like an Elvis to many people and is like an Elvis to me. He was uh, one of the first, if not the first, pop music star to have a, the kind of a teeny bopper following, you know. And when we go through his eras, which we're going to do in a second, you'll see how that both uh, bolstered him and compelled him to do other things as well. And like I said, I'm not approaching this as a Sinatra expert or someone who I, you know, he's done almost 60 albums or he did almost 60 albums. I haven't listened to more than, I think, fewer than 10 but I've, but I know you know dozens and dozens of his singles, and certainly the overall style and and ins and outs and pros and cons of that. So I know enough uh, as a fan, as a vocalist fan, let's say, of a, of a generation that's later than the generation of you know Frank Sinatra, or at least Frank Sinatra in his heyday. You know, so those first years, late thirties, I believe, into the forties. Uh, you know, clearly this, you know, old blue eyes or whatever, you know, golden voice, just this being able to, uh, you know, create that tone with his voice is what propelled him to stardom as well as I assume his good looks and all of that and the kind of attitude that he had. But even then he didn't quite have the full attitude that he'd uh, end up growing into, you know. And there was a certain style of very rounded tone, uh, a little less uh, less variation in singing in the 40s. And if you watched my episode on the, the Decade Slam, where every uh, genre has had a peak era, it's why I say the 50s were the peak era for swing and for, uh, you know, this kind of standards, standards vocal, you know, uh, performers because it kind of got out of itself a little bit more and, and loosened up. And whereas in the 40s, some great, oh my God, some great singers, of course, you know, the 40s and every decade, but hadn't quite come into its own artistically, even if maybe uh, commercially it had definitely come into its own. And then in the 50s, you know, there was this, there was this period for uh, Sinatra where he kind of fell off a little bit. And I believe that was in the early 50s. He was doing movies and things like that. And I think even he realized that if he kept doing just that kind of straight singing the way he did it, although he modeled it, I believe, was it after a trumpet or a trombone or something? You, One of you can help me with that. Just that idea of your voice is an instrument and let it slide when it wants to slide, slide up to the note, slide down to the note, you know, all of that. Uh, there was some innovation there already and modeled after, I believe, Bing Crosby, you know, just the way Elvis modeled himself after, you know, Dean Martin and a lot of the crooners. Uh, it just passed on and on. But again, still not that kind of 
uh, looser, more swinging feel, even more intimate and personal feel. And I think that started to happen in the 50s. And to me, I think the 50s are what turned Sinatra into a legend for all time. If, if he had stopped with what he had done in the 40s or kept doing it, let's say, then he would just be uh, a, you know, a victim on an Al Martino or someone who we know as a really great crooner you know, but not a legend. And in the 50s, and he's somebody who's always been, he had always been artistically restless, realized that he wanted to go in a different direction and needed a refresher, which is something that he did several times in his career to varying degrees of success, and wanted to take more control over his artistic output and not just be the voice in front of the music, but to have more input in the music itself. So he ends up working with uh, you know, in this kind of cool jazz era, my, again, my favorite era of jazz, he ends up working with Nelson Riddle. And I believe that it was this one-two punch of Sinatra knowing and understanding what he wanted from the music and Nelson Riddle being an absolute genius that catapulted him from just another great crooner to a legend, you know, and gave him the uh, the success that from that point on did not wane. I mean, yes, in the later years, it waxed and waned to some degree, but by then he had already reached legendary status, so it almost didn't matter. You know, I mean, I'm sure it mattered to him, but, you know, historically, it doesn't quite matter that much. And I think that working with Nelson Riddle was one of the things that compelled Sinatra to want to start Reprise Records in 1960, because the whole idea there was artists having more artistic control over the music as opposed to music by committee, which a, a good, uh, my, my cousin Jim Castelli, uh, we've been talking about um, not fetishizing the past and why people make the music they do and artists uh, have so many different reasons. And that was one of the phrases that he came up with. Uh, and so, and, you know, he worked with Nelson Riddle uh, for years solely and then off and on after that. And Billy May kind of took up the mantle of that, which I think did incredibly well. Uh, Gordon Jenkins, I, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, you know, if, if, if you can parse any words out of the sentence that I just created, uh, his, his output with Nelson Riddle is not just my favorite of Sinatra's, but probably if I'm being honest, the only Sinatra work that I truly love and quite possibly like just, you know, like the only work of his that I actually like to a degree that I would seek it out to listen to it. And I do own some of those albums on CD. Uh, I don't have anything, uh, you know, uh, displayed here because there was something I was going to pull and I forgot. But you'll see it uh, if you watch the video, the featured song, you'll see the, the album that I wanted to display. We'll talk about that later. And the In the Wee Small Hours is like, Pinnacle, you know, one of the the several albums that are the pinnacle artistically of his career, I believe, and has often been considered the first concept album. We associate concept albums with the 60s and 70s and beyond, but primarily those decades. Concept albums existed even before, really, some people think the proto-concept albums would be like Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads of 1940, or uh, there was a whole uh, Mexican-American movement of musicians uh, like Esquivel who would create like Space Age Pop, Space Age Bachelor Pad Music, I believe was the name of uh, his album. 
uh, and create stories or a world, you know, concept conceptually based on that. That predated in the wee small hours, but a lot of people do say wee small hours was the first true concept album, the one, the first one that was actually conceived as a concept album, you know. Uh, and Sinatra, I, you know, didn't really know this, but he did several concept albums. I think at least a dozen from 1955 on several in, in that ensuing decade, 55 to 65. But then he did one called Watertown in 1970. He did another one more, a triple album in 1980 called Trilogy, Past, Present, Future. Wildly ambitious, again, to varying degrees of success. Uh, I... I listened to a little bit of the past and the present, and then I listened to a little bit of the future. And I have to say that other than I think what where they're getting those terms, past, present, future is in song selection. Because past was Great American Songbook. Present was Pop Tunes, uh, The Beatles Something, and, and I think was on there. Uh, the future was mostly kind of, in a sense, almost stream of consciousness singing. But the thing that links them all and the thing that kind of it kind of fell flat to me is that all the music is just swing band orchestral music. You know, I thought I was expecting, oh, is Future going to have key, some kind of synth or keyboard or, or do interesting rhythms and things like that? No. And that maybe that wasn't the intention, but that's that was what I heard. Now, that album, that triple album also features his version of... New York, New York, which he recorded in 1979. And when I was a kid, I always thought that was an old standard. I just assumed that it existed for decades, like so many of the other things that Sinatra has sung. And then I found out that it was introduced in the movie, New York, New York, by Liza Minnelli in 1977. I mean, geez, right? It proves that classics of any kind can be written at any time, even after the heyday of that genre has passed. Which also brings up in terms of heydays passing, and I'm going off on so many tangents here. We forget that many artists we associate with older eras, let's say the 40s to the 60s, were still alive and working in the 1970s through the 1990s. Duke Ellington worked up through the 1970s, so did Mae West. And I got to go off on a tangent to a tangent here in that she released an album in 1972 called Great Balls of Fire, which she recorded in 1968. She was in her late 70s at the time, and it's a rock album with rock covers and originals. And we're saying Mae West, you think Mae West, 1930s movies, put out an album in 1972. She was was still alive. I think she died in the late 70s. Count Basie worked through the 1980s. So did Nelson Riddle. Irving Berlin died, I think, in the late 80s at like 100 or something. Antonio Carlos Jobim died in the 90s. So did Ella Fitzgerald. And of course, Sinatra died in that decade and worked right up to that period. And then Tony Bennett, it's just a completely different story. I believe he's part robot. Uh, I know he's in his mid-90s now, putting out a new album, if he hasn't already, another kind of, I think it's another Lady Gaga uh, thing. Um yeah, and amazing. And he's, I think, maybe the only person on this extensive list that I, I saw live and uh, loved it. So let's go. Let's swing back because we stopped at We Small Hours and Nelson Riddle. What happened after that? He had his sort of intimate, uh, introspective, 
artistically blossoming period. And then the Rat Pack comes along. You know, and we what we forget, I think, about the Rat Pack, it, well, maybe we don't, but we don't associate it with this, is that its heyday exactly coincided with the onset and one of the major heydays of rock and roll, 50s and 60s, is when the Rat, rat Pack was the most popular and the most influential. And so you had this kind of, you know, it could be equally compelling often artistically. Uh, sometimes it was just sort of a holdover of an earlier era. It had a, a little whiff of nostalgia to it, a little whiff of uh, musical conservatism to it, but it didn't always skew that way. It often did some interesting things and, and did expand the form of crooning and of swing music. And uh, what I noticed with the 1960s, which to me is really the last era when uh, crooning had any major impact, and even then it was waning, uh, you had that period in Sinatra's career when he started to bring in a bit of that stentorian delivery that he'd be known for in his later years that it would often be parodied by people like Joe Piscopo on Saturday Night Live, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, hey, yeah, creeping in, yeah. You know, like, and that doesn't sound like him at all, but just that, that, that kind of vocal delivery and phrasing that was more staccato in a lot of ways than his mellifluous period before. And, and he, you know, didn't exclusively do either. But I think you started to hear a little bit of that in the 1960s before he almost very, very much defaulted to it uh, the more the years went on. And so he would have this period where he bounced between, uh, you know, those stentorian kind of, hey, hip, you know, Rat Pack songs like My Kind of Town, That's Life, and My Way, which I uh, read he actually didn't even like that song. But uh, someone said do it and, you know, career-wise, good move. And then subtler efforts that harken back to the Nelson Riddle years, uh, efforts like the Jobim album that he did. That was in the 1960s, you know. Then, you know, and as the late 1960s progressed, again, artistically restless, somebody who was a, was a fighter, didn't want to just be, you know, relegated to history or to a different era, trying to stay more relevant. He would do slightly rockier arrangements of songs, uh, albums like The World We Knew, covering rock songs, um, Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel, Yesterday, The Beatles, Both Sides Now, Joni Mitchell. Some of those came later, but it was the idea of him, you know, picking from, and he's somebody who believed that, you know, uh, the the Beatles as songwriters, uh, I mean, he, he took them a while to come around to it, I believe, but that they, he believed they were great songwriters. And he'd continue doing these kinds of uh, non-standard, non-American songbook uh, covers throughout his career, again, to varying degrees of success. Uh, the 70s were a lot of that. And, and also, you know, when he at least recorded and then subsequently released that triple album. So some experimentation there, but a lot more performance than recording at that period, including the 80s. His, his final solo album was released in 1984, L.A. is My Lady, which, you know, pause. If you need to take a breath before I say this, his first ever recorded version of Mac the Knife was in 1984. Now, if you know Mac the Knife, you most closely associate it with either Kurt Vile, if you want to be, you know, a pain in the ass erudite, although you'd be true, or Bobby Darren, 
which is the ultimate version of that song and still is. But, you know, you would think, well, geez, I'm sure Mr. Hey had had to have done it, you know, at some point, but not recorded it until 1984. And it's probably partly for that reason. He's like, that's Bobby Darren's song. I don't, I don't need to redo that, you know. And then he had the two duets albums in the 1990s, which were pretty damn successful. Uh, they were critically kind of mixed reviews because uh, it was recorded uh, not together. You know, different cities, I believe, or at least at different times. Uh, but that then those were his last recordings before he died in the late 90s, you know. Uh, and now I believe, and I'm sort of a weird fan of this, because uh, <laughs> the, the, the last words of people, famous people, of course, we don't know them all, but the ones we do, uh, pretty interesting. And I believe that Frank Sinatra's last recorded words were, I'm losing it which just is such a Sinatra thing. And it gives you a little chill, you know. Whereas uh, Walt Whitman's last words, the poet, I believe were hold me up, I have to shit. So you you got a bit of a different spin there, but that kind of fits his personality too. Uh, Anyway, he had a lot of comebacks. Sinatra had his first heyday in the 40s, and then he kind of fell out of favor, and then he blew up big in the 50s and stayed that way through the 60s, and then he sort of, you know, waned a little bit more, and then he puts out New York, New York in 1979, 1980, and is pretty, pretty big then. And then saying in terms of popular culture, I'm not talking about Vegas or places where he performed. Uh, I know there was a period where he didn't have full houses, but post that period, all of his houses were full every time he performed, you know, and uh, as they should have been. And then uh, fell out again, you know, in the 80s and then duets come back in the 90s right before he died. And that just shows, again, artistic restlessness and his fighting spirit. You know, no matter what else he got involved with, whether it was the Kennedys or politics in any way, or if you believe there was any connection to the mob and stuff that I don't really care to get into, he always put the music first. I believe my dad said that he said, you know, no matter what else went on, whether he was acting or, again, getting involved in politics or all these other things, all he ever wanted to do was sing. You know, just an just a Italian-American who wanted to sing, you know, which some of us can relate to. How does he rank? You know, you know to answer that second part of the title, was Frank Sinatra really all that great? I believe that there were things he brought into the vocabulary of singing that thousands of other singers have used. I believe that he was often a genius, especially, again, in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, I believe that his passion and artistry in my opinion, in terms of his body of work, his passion and artistry surpassed his overall quality. And, and that's, a, that's a hard one. It's obviously his overall quality was, was at very least good and mostly great and, again, sometimes genius. But I believe his artistry and passion surpassed even the genius of what he did and and you can hear that in the range of his career the breadth of his career that said and and i don't know if you can tell this he's never been my favorite crooner uh 
uh, I think if we're going for that specific kind of heyday era, I will always have to default to Tony Bennett. Mel Torme is another one kind of on the other spectrum as far as the type of singing. You know, where you had uh, Jazzer, Mel Torme's the Jazzer, and, and Tony Bennett's the Belter, if you're going with those classifications that I completely made up. Well, not completely. You know, Sinatra ranks, but as an Italian or half-Italian-American, it's often a surprise to some of my relatives that I'm not somebody who reveres Sinatra the way, you know, if you're an Italian-American... You know, there's certain things you're supposed to be a huge fan of. I don't know, Godfather, Columbus Day, Sinatra, you know, stuff like that. And I have mixed feelings, uh, let's say, about all of those, you know, to to some degree, uh, especially Columbus Day. But the point being, uh, it's a stereotype that if you're Italian, Frank Sinatra is your favorite, you know, singer of that type. And he's not mine. Uh, But I'm doing a whole episode half of which is dedicated just to talking about this man. So uh, clearly there's a level of respect. And would absolutely love to hear from you whether you are someone who can't stand Sinatra, someone who's more like me in the middle, or someone who thinks Sinatra is and was God. I want to hear from you because I, I think discussions like that are incredible. You know, So let's get into this run-through, of a uh, quick run-through of the crooner errors. You know, now I'm not including artists who were primarily blues, primarily jazz, primarily R&B, primarily pop, primarily rock, whatever else you want to say. Uh, I am going with people whose main body of work was crooning. Was that intimate, soft kind of, you know, somewhat quasi jazz singing. And again, keeping in mind my classification, straight up crooner. Belter, jazzer, popper, dabbler. I will sometimes refer to those or I'll forget completely. And you'll get to see which. First era onset of amplified sound, microphones, 1920s and 30s. You had people like Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, Russ Colombo, someone my dad mentioned. He's on a lot of lists. Rudy Valley. Uh, you had Gene Austin and what I call the country contingent, what... What a lot of people who were into crooning uh, didn't know, including me, is that a lot of the onset of crooning and the first kind of wave of successful crooning artists started in that country or country pop genre, like Cliff, Cliff Edwards uh, is another one. Uh, then you had Vaughn DeLeith, Ruth Edding, Annette Hanshaw, Helen Humes, Helen Kane, Josh White, Johnny Marvin, and Al Boley, and all of those names at that period you could probably walk down the street and people would know who they were. And I didn't know any of them. You know, and that's, you know, one of those gone eras gone by. Like if you had to name the most famous silent film stars, you could probably name four, you know, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. And I don't know much about that. My friend Kevin does. But even though there were superstars, they were superstars. Rudolph Valentino, you know. Who some of whom didn't make the crossover into talkies, you just forget because it's such an earlier era. Which brings me to the second era, the heyday era, and one that I call the Italian takeover, uh, which was the 1940s and 50s. It's the classic. It's what we think of when we think of crooning. It's the most popular era, I think, still to this day. It's when the even though uh, standards and the quote-unquote Great American Songbook songs 
were written before the 1940s and 50s. In fact, many of the songs from the 40s and 50s were covers of songs that were written in the 20s and 30s or even teens and before then. This is really what we associate with the Great American Songbook and swing, uh, you know, light, light jazz swing and crooning. It's 40s and 50s. You had Sinatra. You had Tony Bennett, Perry Como, Vic Damone, Doris Day, Pat Boone, a popper, Eddie Fisher, Joni James, uh, apparently was very famous, uh, Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington, which to me are the jazzers, mostly jazz, but crossed over into crooning, uh, Frankie Lane, Al Martino, Bobby Darren, pause. Bobby Darren started Splish Splash, had some early rock and roll hits, went into crooning in this late 50s period through, I believe, the early 60s, but then switched to like folk and rock. And this is somebody who had a heart condition, who died young, who just whose passion was, I need to get out as much music of as much kind and many kinds as possible and did that. And he's, I think, one of the few artists on this entire list who was able to successfully cross from, you know, between genres like that and be not just credible, but good. And he's someone who I think, again, if I had to name like Mel Torme, Tony Bennett, Bobby Darren would be up there. And the only reason I don't name him first as one of my, you know, all-time crooners is because he did so much more than crooning. Patty Page, Dinah Shore, Nat King Cole, a jazzer, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, a jazzer, and blues, oh my God, same with Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney, Judy Garland, uh, also maybe a belter, Billy Eckstein, Peggy Lee, maybe a popper, uh, Judy, uh, no, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, the incomparable Sammy Davis Jr., K-Star, Louis Prima, and to me, that was, that was proto-rock, that was jazz, that was a bit of a New Orleans, uh, you know, feel to it, and in some ways, it was crooning. I put him on just because he's a favorite, but I don't know if you can classify him as a crooner. Mel Torme, uh, I forget the freaking Velvet Fog, I believe, was his nickname. And if you listen to his voice, and he's someone who's scatting, though very different from Ella Fitzgerald, was on a par. It was known for it. Uh, you know. And I think if I had to just say who are the two greatest scat singers in the world, at least in the classic era, because I've heard some more contemporary scatting that's been amazing. It's Ella and Mel Torme. Gordon McRae, Joe Stafford, Brenda Lee, uh, Bobby Vinton, more of a popper, I would say. Uh, Nikki DiMatteo, Andy Williams, Jerry Vale. Wait, what? Back that up? What did you just say? Yeah, not me. I've sung swing jazz type music, crooning, but I have not recorded it in any uh, quality way. Uh, I may at some point. Uh, it's just not been my focus. But my dad, who's made a career in part on this type of music, although he's someone like a Bobby Darren, who's been able to cross over to various genres, started his career out as a crooner who had belting qualities, who had some crossover pop qualities. And even though by the time the 60s hit, he morphed over into pop and rock and things like that, he, again, his crooning was where he really started. And he did release some early rock and roll songs in the late 50s and, and everything. Uh, but his big album at that time was uh, released in 1961. But I'm putting him in this 40s, 50s, because like I said, he switched after that. Blame it on my youth. 
And you're going to hear a song from that at the end of this episode. That's the the treat. That's the super special featured song. It's not going to be one of my songs. It's going to be one of my dad's songs. Which brings us to the third era, 1960s and 70s. Uh, it had hit a stride and then kind of maybe took that stride for granted and started to become less relevant and out of the spotlight and to a point where it be, kind of became its own parody and got very treacly. Uh, by the time you hit the 70s, I call it the warmed over period. Now, I'm going to start with somebody who I think doesn't deserve any of those epithets, and that's Lou Rawls. I did an episode on Lou Rawls and still to this day say in terms of that you know, third era of crooning, right at the top. You had Tom Jones who did a lot of crooning, but he was also, of course, a, a, a belter and a popper. <laughs> and did a lot of, uh, did some rock and did some, you know, white soul, some northern soul. Liza Minnelli, also a belter, of course, and the musical theater and all that. Bette Midler, same thing, also a belter. But then you had that kind of smooth singing, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck, uh, Robert Goulet, uh, Anthony Newley to some degree, although he was very kind of musical theatery. You had Jack Jones and Wayne Newton. Johnny Mathis, even though started in the 50s, was just unstoppable in the 60s and beyond. Barry Manilow, when you hit the 70s, uh, certainly, a, you know, a crooner, uh, maybe even more of a crooner than a popper. Paul Anka, Julio Iglesias, which brings up uh, that there are a lot of crooners who crooned in other languages or who are from other cultures who I'm not mentioning here. And so, again, this is very America-centric. If you know of any crooners from uh, other countries that should be mentioned here, put them in the comments, and I will mention them in one of my catch-up episodes. But, you know, Julio Iglesias was listed on a lot of these, uh, you know, crooner websites, and I believe that is true. Steve Lawrence, Anita Gourmet, uh, you know, yeah, people like that. Fourth era. So you you pass by when it waned in popularity and to me became a parody of itself and just completely fell out of favor unless you were a circuit performer or a performer in Vegas. So it was quiet. And this can be a very good and fruitful time for a genre when the genre has passed its heyday and isn't con- you know constantly feeling the pressure of having to be commercially successful. Other people can take up the mantle or even older stars and do interesting things with it or bring it back in a certain way. And I believe this was fourth era. I call this the nostalgia era. So you had the 80s and 90s. You have people uh, like the first one that comes to mind is Harry Connick, who in in a lot of ways, because of when Harry met Sally, kicked off uh, the nostalgia period for this kind of music. And that, damn, I should have written down the name of that arranger who works has worked with Harry Connick frequently and I believe has written some amazing songs in that style. Uh, Wink and a Smile, I believe. Anyway, you'll tell me, or some please somebody tell me the name of that uh, range of the band leader, but really created this neo, you know, swing that almost sounded like the old stuff. And even though I did, you know, uh, talk about Harry Connick in a previous episode a couple of seasons ago and talked about how I prefer his piano playing and his kind of more down-home New Orleans singing than I do his crooning, you you can't, you got to give it to him for the crooning as well. Uh, people like Chris Isaac and Cassandra Wilson 
who morphed crooning into other styles. Chris Isaac could almost, you would almost say he went back to the kind of country contingent, but in a very kind of almost, uh, you know, soft shoegaze way, you know, like a Mazzy Star kind of way. And Cassandra Wilson is mostly jazz, but boy, that voice and deserves to be on this list. Diana Krall started in the 90s as well. Um, she is a name that I will mention who is a singer. Squirrel Nut Zippers and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. So you have two bands who were reviving this kind of swing music with some crooning involved. And the Squirrel Nut Zippers, to me, the revival was more like music from the 1920s and 30s, you know. And Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, to, to me, they were basically using Louis Prima as a template. So again, some crooning, but mostly kind of that swing jazz feel. But you also had Sade, who is R&B, but oh, but that that type of, again, that's some crooning. Bobby McFerrin, who did everything, uh, more than I even realized. But a lot of that was crooning. Anita Baker deserves to be mentioned here, too. Of course, lean more toward R&B, jazz, and soul, but please. And you had comebacks for people in the 90s, in particular, like Sinatra and Bennett. And, of course, Bennett's comeback hasn't really never stopped. Uh, and, you know, Sinatra... Uh, went out in style, let's say. And that's also, this is also the era when you started to see way more pop and rock artists do crooning albums, do great American songbook albums, trying to cross over to varying degrees of artistic success. You had, going back a little, Willie Nelson did one in 1978, somebody who really deserves, because he made it his own, deserves the praise, and is to me, a songwriter on a par with Dolly Parton in that you forget that this person isn't just a personality who does country music. The things that they like, you know, Willie Nelson wrote crazy, for example, you know. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, uh, What's New, I believe it was called, in 1983, was very successful. And then you eventually have people like Rod Stewart, and I'm holding one eye because I've talked about this before on one of my Music is Everything episodes and just that I would have preferred if Rod Stewart had found a way to make these songs sound more like Rod Stewart music than than just to try to imitate crooning music. But what are you going to do? Cindy Lauper, James Taylor, very recently, I think just a couple of years ago, did a Great American Songbook album and again in sort of the Willie Nelson style made it his own. It's just such a beautiful way. And, and I've talked about this on the James Taylor episode. Some of the lyrics from those songs, which I believe a lot of people underestimate, what amazing and, and insightful lyrics those songs of the 30s, 40s, 50s had. Uh, I understood and heard the lyrics in a different way or in a more significant way when I listened to James Taylor's uh, Standards album. So 80s and 90s, kind of a mishmash, Right. Fifth era, final era, 2000s until now, It to me, it's everything, the way this whole last 20 years has been. Everything exists for every reason in every way. But if you're talking specifically about crooning, to me, it's now become crooning for its own sake. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of nostalgia involved in there because a lot of the crooning still harkens back arrangement-wise and sound-wise to the classic era. But it's people who genuinely love it and are doing it because they love it and that's all they want to do people like michael buble you know a guy named matt dusk jamie cullum hadn't heard of them but there you go 
uh, Madeline Peru, I believe, leans more jazz. Again, Adele, who's mostly rock, pop, soul, but has done some crooning. Uh, you have Nora Jones. What else are you going to say other than she's a crooner? And I'll mention Diana Krall again for two reasons. One, because she became more popular, I believe, in this era, in the final era, than she did when she started, even though she did kind of come out with a bang. And the second reason I'll mention it is because I believe that you can bring as much artistry and subtlety to crooning. And I don't even mean jazz. I mean straight up crooning as you can to any kind of music. And I also believe that just like when people recite poetry out loud, if you get too lost in the mellifluousness of what is coming out of your mouth, you'll not only lose the meaning, you'll lose, you'll lose a lot of the artistry too. You'll lose the subtlety. I don't know why I brought that up in terms of Diana Krall, but you can, you can make your own, uh, you know, uh, judgments there. And then I'm going to one more, and that is a new addition to this. And I hesitate to do it because there's another person who leans in every direction, and that is Leslie Odom Jr. And I'll only say this because, yes, musical theater, yes, kind of R&B and soul and all of that stuff, but I heard some cuts and I mentioned this on my Christmas episode, I was blown away. And yeah, I will say that it crosses over into jazz to me. It is, it toes that line. Because it's not straight up, let me mess with the melody till you can't understand it, which I, in in many ways, absolutely love. It is, let me mess with the melody, but still keep it in that pocket. In a way that is just interesting, and the voice is incredible, and I recommend listen to any of Leslie Odom's music, but listen to the crooning music since we're talking about crooning. Uh, so, and to me, it's established itself as something that's just here to stay. And it, it it's, you know, this total renaissance of people like the, you know, fame of Buble and, and, you know, even some of what Josh Groban has done. Sam Smith is a different kind of crooner, but what else are you going to call that kind of singing? Seth MacFarlane, who's known for other things, but is actually has... Uh, a very, you know, imitative, yes, but a very uh, heartfelt uh, crooning delivery in, in what he does. And I believe that's probably his favorite kind of music. Uh, but you'll be surprised if you listen to a Seth MacFarlane uh, song. You might not even know it's him at first and be like, oh, wow, he's actually really good. So crooning, you know, I will say this before we get to the featured song and your questions is that. Again, yes, I'll, I won't have to say that you, you, can, you can have a great level of artistry and crooning. As a genre in general, to me, it does not artistically live up to the level of jazz. It's not meant to. I think that there are types of music that put on the clothing of other genres that are really actually a different genre. Uh, I rem- always remember one, a song, I forget the song from En Vogue in the early 90s that had rock guitars in it, but it was very clear it's not a rock song. So it was putting on the clothes of rock, not meant to be rock. I believe that crooning puts on the clothes of jazz, even though it's mostly not meant to be jazz. Uh, I think that crooning can get really, uh, I don't know, quiz inducing if that that's probably not a real thing it's often too self-congratulating and i think that's why again getting lost in the tone of just singing smoothly and having 
often not even enough attitude, but you have an attitude of like a self-congratulate, too enamored of your vocal tone. But again, it's a matter of taste. And if there are crooners I like, even though it's not my primary genre, there are crooners you like, you may like them all. You may like none of them. And if you like none of them, I challenge you to listen to somebody I mentioned today, because I think you find something that you will like, because there's enough variety in there, right? Which brings me to the featured song. So my dad, long career, mostly performing, but also recorded dozens and dozens of things, including a couple of albums and an EP. Uh, uh, funny enough, uh, the album I'm talking about today with this kind of like jazz crooning swinger is not the same as the album from the 70s, which was original music, rock and pop, is not the same from the EP of the, I believe, 90s, which was country. So like I said, Bobby Darren, you know, can jump from genre to genre. But this 1961 album, Blame It On My Youth, has arrangements that this is why that 50s, early 60s period is my favorite period of jazz and of this kind of music, because it's it's interesting, it's vibrant, it hadn't devolved into a repetition or parody of itself, and you can hear that, I forget, my dad can tell me who arranged this, they, who band leader they worked with for this album, but you can hear that here, you can hear just amazing elements of jazz, particularly that late 50s or turn of the decade, you know, jazz, and that's throughout the entire album. And the album, the song selections are interesting to me too. And the song that I'm featuring here in the next minute or so is called The Ladies in Love With You. Standard, you know, classic, been done. Uh, I love my dad's uh, delivery on this. I love the arrangement on this. I love the feel of it in general. So much so that when I was a music supervisor uh, for several films back in the uh, late O's and teens early mid-teens, I used this song, Ladies in Love With You, in a movie called Lock, Load, Love. Uh, on the soundtrack of that, which that, of course, Lock, Load, Love is the opening track of It Wasn't Me, the album that I put out recently. But I, I think that among the many things my dad has done, it fit what we needed. We needed a swing song. And it was the perfect, uh, you know, subject matter, lyrically. So, hey, Listen to it. Stick around. Let me know what you think. Uh, let me know what you think of all of this. Are you a Sinatra fan? Do you have a favorite period? If you're not a Sinatra fan, why not? Do Are there other crooners that you like better? Do you not like crooning at all? Are there any crooners of the last 40 to 50 years you're a fan of? You know, uh, I'm hard-pressed to find that many. Um, you know, when I think of Michael Bublé and Diana Krall, I think of the you know certain periods of Sinatra that don't thrill me but that's that's my opinion and I hope it sparks something in you like I, how can you say that about them or yeah you're so right or I don't honestly care I want to hear all that because as always my objectives here are music conversation and connection thank you and I will see you for my mid-season catch-up episode next week <laughs> Join that table. 
chicks that far away booth for two Well, sir, here's just how it stands You've got romance on your hands Because the lady's in love with you It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 